But if a man will not hear preaching, nor read God's word, but despises the word and congregation of God, and thus dies and perishes in his sins, he neither can comfort himself with God's eternal election, nor obtain his mercy. For Christ, in whom we are chosen, offers to all men his grace in the word and holy sacraments, and wishes earnestly that it be heard, and has promised that where two or three are gathered together in his name and are occupied with his holy word, he will be in their midst. But when such a person despises the instrument of the Holy Ghost and will not hear, no injustice is done to him if the Holy Ghost does not enlighten him, but allows him to remain in the darkness of his unbelief and to perish. For regarding this matter it is written, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. And in this respect, it may well be said that man is not a stone or block, for a stone or block does not resist the person who moves it, nor does it understand and is sensible of what is being done with it, as man with his will so long resists God the Lord until he is converted. And it is nevertheless true that man before his conversion is still a rational creature, having an understanding and will, however, not an understanding with respect to divine things, or a will to will something good and salutary. Yet he can do nothing whatever towards his conversion, as has also been said frequently above, and is in this respect much worse than a stone and block, for he resists the word and will of God, until God awakens him from the death of sin, enlightens and renews him. And although God does not force man to become godly, for those who always resist the Holy Ghost and persistently oppose the known truth, as Stephen says of the hardened Jews, Acts 7.51, are not converted. Yet, God the Lord draws the man whom he wishes to convert and draws him in such a way that his darkened understanding is turned to an enlightened one and his perverse will into an obedient one. And this is what the scriptures call creating a new heart, Psalm 51.10. And for this reason, it, it cannot be correctly said that man before his conversion has a modus agendi or a way, namely of working something good and salutary in divine things. For inasmuch as man before his conversion is dead in sins, Ephesians 2.5, there can be in him no power to work anything good in divine things, and hence, too, he has no modus agendi, or way of working in divine things. But when we treat of the matter, how God works in man, God has nevertheless one modus agendi, or way of working in man, as an irrational creature, and another way of working in some other irrational creature, or in a stone and block, Nevertheless, no modus agendi or no way whatever of working something good in spiritual things can be ascribed to man before his conversion. But when man has been converted and is thus enlightened and his will is renewed, it is then that man wills what is good, 
so far as he is regenerate or a new man, and delights in the law of God after the inward man, Romans 7.22, and henceforth does good to such an extent, and as long as he is impelled by God's Spirit. As Paul says, Romans 8.14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And this impulse of the Holy Ghost is not a coactio or coercion, but the converted man does good spontaneously, as David says, Psalm 110.4, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And nevertheless, that also remains in the regenerate, of which St. Paul wrote Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Also verse 25, So then with my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh serve the law of sin. Also Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. From this, then, it follows that as soon as the Holy Ghost, as has been said through the Word and Holy Sacraments, has begun in us this, his work of regeneration and renewal, it is certain that through the power of the Holy Ghost we can and should cooperate, although still in great weakness. But this that we cooperate does not occur from our carnal natural powers, but from the new powers and gifts which the Holy Ghost has begun in us in conversion, as St. Paul expressly and earnestly exhorts, that as workers together with him, we receive not the grace of God in vain, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, but this is to be understood in no other way than that the converted man does good to such an extent and so long as God by his Holy Spirit rules, guides, and leads him, and that as soon as God would withdraw his gracious hand from him, he could not for a moment persevere in obedience to God. But if this were understood thus, that the converted man cooperates with the Holy Ghost in the manner as when two horses draw a wagon, this could in no way be conceded without prejudice to the divine truth. Therefore, there is a great difference between baptized and unbaptized men. For since, according to the doctrine of St. Paul, Galatians 3.27, all who have been baptized have put on Christ and thus are truly regenerate. They have now arbitrium liberatum, that is, a liberated will. That is, as Christ says, they have been made free again, John 8.36 whence they are able not only to hear the word, but also to assent to it and accept it, although in great weakness. For since we receive in this life only the first fruits of the Spirit, and the new birth is not complete but only begun in us, the combat and struggle of the flesh against the Spirit remains even in the elect and truly regenerate men. For there is a great difference perceptible among Christians not only in this, that one is weak and another strong in the Spirit. But each Christian, moreover, experiences in himself that at one time he is joyful in spirit, and at another fearful and alarmed, at one time ardent in love, 
strong in faith and hope, and at another, cold and weak. But when the baptized have acted against their conscience, allowed sin to rule in them, and thus have grieved and lost the Holy Ghost in them, they need not be rebaptized, but must be converted again, as has been sufficiently said before. For this is certainly true, that in genuine conversion a change, new emotion, and movement in the intellect, will, and heart must take place, namely, that the heart perceives sin, dread God's wrath, turn from sin, perceive and accept the promise of grace in Christ, have good spiritual thoughts, a Christian purpose and diligence, and strive against the flesh. For where none of these occurs or is present, there is also no true conversion. But since the question is de causa efficiente concerning the efficient cause, that is, who works this in us, and whence man has this, and how he attains it. This doctrine informs us that since the natural powers of man cannot do anything or help towards it, 1 Corinthians 2.14, 2 Corinthians 3.5, God out of his infinite goodness and mercy comes first to us and causes his holy gospel to be preached, whereby the Holy Ghost desires to work and accomplish in us this conversion and renewal, and through preaching and meditation upon his word, kindles in us faith and other godly virtues, so that they are gifts and operations of the Holy Ghost alone. This doctrine, therefore, directs us to the means whereby the Holy Ghost desires to begin and work this, also instructs us how those gifts are preserved, strengthened, and increased, and admonishes us that we should not let this grace of God be bestowed on us in vain, but diligently exercise it, and ponder how grievous a sin it is to hinder and resist such operations of the Holy Ghost. From this thorough explanation of the entire doctrine concerning free will, we can now judge lastly also the questions upon which, for quite a number of years, there has been controversy in the churches of the Augsburg Confession, on homo ante, in, post, conversionem, spiritui sancto repugnet, well pure passive, se habeat, an homo convertatur utruncus, an spiritus sanctus detur repugnantibus, et an conversio hominis fiat per modum coactionis, that is, whether man, before, in, or after his conversion resists the Holy Ghost, and whether he does nothing whatever, but only suffers what God works in him, or is purely passive. Likewise, whether in conversion man acts and is like a block, likewise, whether the Holy Ghost is given to those who resist him, likewise, whether conversion occurs by coercion, so that God coerces men to conversion by force against their wills, and can perceive, expose, censure, and reject the opposite dogmas and errors, namely, one. First, the folly of the Stoics and Manichaeans, who asserted that everything that happens must so happen, et hominem coactum omnia facere, 
that is, that man does everything from coercion, and that even in outward works the will of man has no freedom or ability to render, to a certain extent, external righteousness and respectable deportment, and to avoid external sins and vices, or that the will of man is coerced to external wicked deeds in chastity, robbery, murder, etc. 2. Secondly, the error of the gross Pelagians, that the free will from its own natural powers without the Holy Ghost can turn to God, believe the gospel, and be obedient to God's law from the heart, and by this its voluntary obedience can merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Thirdly, the error of the papists and scholastics, who have proceeded in a somewhat more subtle manner, and have taught that man from his own natural powers can make a beginning of doing good and of his own conversion, and that then the Holy Ghost, because man is too weak to bring it to completion, comes to the aid of the good begun from a person's own natural powers. Four. Fourthly, the doctrine of the synergists, who pretend that man is not absolutely dead to good and spiritual things, but is badly wounded and half dead. Therefore, although the free will is too weak to make a beginning and to convert itself to God by its own powers and to be obedient to God's law from the heart, nevertheless, when the Holy Ghost makes a beginning and calls us through the gospel and offers His grace, the forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation, that then the free will from its own natural powers can meet God and to a certain extent although feebly do something towards it, help and cooperate thereto, can qualify itself for and apply itself to grace, and apprehend and accept it, and believe the gospel, and can also cooperate by its own powers with the Holy Ghost in the continuation and maintenance of this work. Over against this, however, it has been shown at length above that such power namely, facultas applicande, applicandi se ad gratiam, that is, to qualify oneself by nature for grace, does not proceed from our own natural powers, but alone from the operation of the Holy Ghost. 5. Likewise, the following doctrine of the popes and monks, that after his regeneration man can completely fulfill the law of God in this life, and that through this fulfillment of the law, he is righteous before God and merits eternal life. 6. On the other hand, the enthusiast should be rebuked with great earnestness and zeal, and should in no way be tolerated in the church of God, who imagine that God, without any means, without the hearing of the divine word, and without the use of the holy sacraments, draws men to himself and enlightens, justifies, and saves them. 7. Also those who imagine that in conversion and regeneration, God creates a new heart and new man in such a way that the substance and essence of the old Adam, and especially the rational soul, are completely destroyed, and a new essence of the soul is created out of nothing. This error St. Augustine expressly rebukes in his exposition of Psalm 25, where he quotes the passage from Paul, Ephesians 4.22, put off the old man, etc., 
and explains it in the following words. Ne aliquis arbitretur deponendam esse aliquam substantiam exposuit quid esset. Deponite veterem hominem et induri ite novum, cum dicit in consequentibus, qua propter deponentes mendacium loquimini veritatem. Ecce, hoc est deponere veterem hominem et induere novum, etc. That is, lest anyone might think that the substance or essence of man is to be laid aside, he has himself explained what it, what it is to lay aside the old man and to put on the new, when he says in the succeeding words, putting away lying, speak the truth. Behold, that is, to put off the old man and to put on the new. 8. Likewise, if the following expressions are used without being explained, namely, that the will of man before, in, and after conversion resist the Holy Ghost, and that the Holy Ghost is given to those who resist him. For from the preceding explanation it is manifest that where no change whatever in intellect, will, and heart occurs through the Holy Ghost to that which is good, and man does not at all believe the promise, and is not rendered fit by God for grace, but entirely resist the word, there no conversion takes place or can be. For conversion is such a change through the operation of the Holy Ghost in the intellect, will, and heart of man, that by this operation of the Holy Ghost man can accept the offered grace. And indeed, all those who obstinately and persistently resist the operations and movements of the Holy Ghost, which take place through the Word, do not receive but grieve and lose the Holy Ghost. Now there remains, nevertheless, also in the regenerate, an obstinacy, a certain rebelliousness, of which the Scriptures speak, namely, that the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, Galatians 5.17, likewise that fleshly lusts war against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11, and that the law in the members war against the law of the mind, Romans 7.23. Accordingly, the man who is not regenerate resists God altogether and is entirely a servant of sin, John 8.34, Romans 6.16. The regenerate person, however, delights in the law of God after the inward man, but nevertheless sees in his members the law of sin, which wars against the law of the mind, on this account he serves the law of God with his mind, but with the flesh the law of sin, Romans 7.25. In this way, the correct opinion can and should be thoroughly, clearly, and discreetly explained and taught. As to the expressions of Chrysostom and Basil, Trahit Deus, sed volentem trahit, tantum velis, et Deus praeg ocurit, Likewise, the saying of the scholastics and papists, Hominis voluntas in conversione non est otiosa, sed agit aliquid. That is, God draws, but he draws the willing. 
likewise, only be willing and God will anticipate you. Likewise, in conversion, the will of man is not idle but affects something. Expressions which have been introduced for confirming the natural free will and man's conversion against the doctrine concerning God's grace. It is manifest from the explanation heretofore presented that they are not in harmony with the form of sound doctrine but contrary to it, and therefore ought to be avoided when we speak of conversion to God. For the conversion of our corrupt will, which is nothing else than a resuscitation of it from spiritual death, is only and solely the work of God, just as also the resuscitation and the resurrection of the body must be ascribed to God alone, as has been fully set forth above and proved by manifest testimonies of Holy Scripture. But how God in conversion changes stubborn and willing unto willing men through the drawing of the Holy Ghost, and that after such conversion in the daily exercise of repentance, the regenerate will of man is not idle, but also cooperates in all the works of the Holy Ghost, which he does through us, has already been sufficiently explained above. So also, when Luther says that with respect to his conversion, man is pure passive, purely passive, that is, does nothing whatever towards it, but only suffers what God works in him, his meaning is not that conversion takes place without the preaching and hearing of God's word, nor is this his meaning, that in conversion no new emotion whatever is awakened in us by the Holy Ghost, and no spiritual operation begun, but he means that man of himself, or from his natural powers, cannot do anything or help towards his conversion, and that conversion is not only in part, but altogether an operation, gift, and present, and work of the Holy Ghost alone, who accomplishes and effects it by his power and might, through the word, in the intellect, will, and heart of man, tam quam in, in subjecto patiente, that is, while man does or works nothing, but only suffers, not as a figure is cut into stone, or a seal impressed into wax, which knows nothing of it, neither perceives and wills this, but in the way which has been recounted and explained a short while ago. Since also the youths in the schools have been greatly perplexed de tribus causis efficientibus, concurrentibus in conversione hominis non renati, that is, by the doctrine of the three efficient causes of the conversion of unregenerate man to God, as to the manner in which they, namely the word of God preached and heard, the Holy Ghost and the will of man, concur, it is again manifest from the explanation above presented that conversion to God is a work of God the Holy Ghost alone, who is the true master that alone works this in us, for which he uses the preaching and hearing of his holy word as his ordinary and lawful means and instrument. But the intellect and will of the unregenerate man are nothing else than subiectum convertendum, that is, that which is to be converted. It, being the intellect and will of a spiritually dead man, in whom the Holy Ghost works conversion and renewal, towards which work man's will that is to be converted does nothing, but suffers God alone to work in him until he is regenerate. And then he works also with the Holy Ghost, 
that which is pleasing to God in other good works that follow, in the way and to the extent fully set forth above. Article 3. The Righteousness of Faith The third controversy which has arisen among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession is concerning the righteousness of Christ, or of faith, which God imputes by grace through faith to poor sinners for righteousness. For one side has contended that the righteousness of faith, which the Apostle calls the righteousness of God, is God's essential righteousness, which is Christ himself as the true, natural, and essential Son of God, who dwells in the elect by faith and impels them to do right, and thus is their righteousness, compared with which righteousness the sins of all men are as a drop of water compared with the great ocean. Over against this, others have held and taught that Christ is our righteousness according to his human nature alone. In opposition to both these parties, it has been unanimously taught by the other teachers of the Augsburg Confession that Christ is our righteousness not according to his divine nature alone, nor according to his human nature alone, but according to both natures. For he has redeemed, justified, and saved us from our sins as God and man through his complete obedience, that therefore the righteousness of faith is the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and our adoption as God's children only on account of the obedience of Christ, which through faith alone, out of pure grace, is imputed for righteousness to all true believers, and on account of it they are absolved from all their unrighteousness. Besides this, there have been still other disputes caused and excited on the account of the interim, on the occasion of the formula of the interim, or of interreligion, and otherwise, concerning the article of justification, which will hereafter be explained in antithesis, that is, in the enumeration of those errors which are contrary to the pure doctrine in this article. This article concerning justification by faith, as the Apology says, is the chief article in the entire Christian doctrine, without which no poor conscience can have any firm consolation or can truly know the riches of the grace of Christ. As Dr. Luther also has written, if this only article remains pure on the battlefield, the Christian church also remains pure, and in goodly harmony and without any sects. But if it does not remain pure, it is not possible that any error or fanatical spirit can be resisted. And concerning this article especially, Paul says that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Therefore, in this article, he urges with so much zeal and earnestness the particulas exclusivas, that is, the words whereby the works of men are excluded, namely, without law, without works, by grace, freely. Romans 3.28, 4.5, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. In order to indicate how highly necessary it is that in this article, aside from the, the presentation of the pure doctrine, the antithesis, that is, all contrary dogmas, be stated separately, exposed, and rejected by this means. Therefore, in order to explain this controversy in a Christian way by means of God's word and by his grace to settle it, our doctrine, faith, and confession are as follows. 
Concerning the righteousness of faith before God, we believe, teach, and confess unanimously in accordance with the comprehensive summary of our faith and confession presented above, that poor sinful man is justified before God, that is, absolved and declared free and exempt from all his sins, and from the sentence of well-deserved condemnation, and adopted into sonship and heirship of eternal life, without any merit or worth of our own, also without any preceding, present, or any subsequent subsequent works, out of pure grace, because of the sole merit, complete obedience, bitter suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Christ alone, whose obedience is reckoned to us for righteousness. These treasures are offered us by the Holy Ghost in the promise of the Holy Gospel, and faith alone is the only means by which we lay hold upon, accept, and apply, and appropriate them to ourselves. This faith is a gift of God, by which we truly learn to know Christ our Redeemer in the word of the Gospel, and trust in Him, that for the sake of His obedience alone, we have the forgiveness of sins by grace, are regarded as godly and righteous by God the Father, and are eternally saved. Therefore it is considered and understood to be the same thing when Paul says that we are justified by faith, Romans 3.28, or that faith is counted to us for righteousness, Romans 4.5, and when he says that we are made righteous by the obedience of one, Romans 5.19, or that by the righteousness of one, justification of faith came to all men, Romans 5.18. For faith justifies not for this cause and reason that it is so good a work and so fair a virtue, but because it lays hold of and accepts the merit of Christ in the promise of the Holy Gospel. For this must be applied and appropriated to us by faith, if we are to be justified thereby. Therefore the righteousness which is imputed to faith or to the believer out of pure grace is the obedience, suffering, and resurrection of Christ, since he has made satisfaction for us to the law, and paid for our sins. For since Christ is not man alone, but God and man in one undivided person, he was as little subject to the law, because he is the Lord of the law, as he had to suffer and die as far as his person is concerned. For this reason, then, his obedience, not only in suffering and dying, but also in this, that he in our stead was voluntarily made under the law and fulfilled it by this obedience, is imputed to us for righteousness, so that on account of this complete obedience, which he rendered his heavenly Father for us, by doing and suffering, in living and dying, God forgives our sins, regards us as godly and righteous, and eternally saves us. This righteousness is offered us by the Holy Ghost through the gospel and in the sacraments, and is applied, appropriated, and received through faith, whence believers have reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, sonship, and heirship of eternal life. Accordingly, the word justify here means to declare righteous and free from sins, and to absolve one from eternal punishment for the sake of Christ's righteousness, which is imputed by God to faith, Philippians 3.9. For this use and understanding of this word is common in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs 17.15, He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. 
Isaiah 5.23 Woe unto them which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Romans 8.33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, that is, absolves from sins and acquits. However, since the word regeneratio, regeneration, is sometimes employed for the word justificatio, that is, justification, it is necessary that this word be properly explained, in order that the renewal which follows justification of faith may not be confounded with the justification of faith, but that they may be properly distinguished from one another. For in the first place, the word regeneratio, that is, regeneration, is used so as to comprise at the same time the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake alone and the succeeding renewal which the Holy Ghost works in those who are justified by faith. Then again, it is sometimes used pro remissione peccatorum et adoptione in filios dei, that is, so as to mean only the remission of sins and that we are adopted as sons of God. And in this latter sense, the word is much and often used in the Apology, where it is written, justificatio est regeneratio, that is, justification before God is regeneration. St. Paul, too, has employed these words as distinct from one another, Titus 3.5, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the, of the Holy Ghost. As also the word we Vivificatio, that is, making alive, has sometimes been used in a like sense. For when man is justified by faith, which the Holy Ghost alone works, this is truly a regeneration, because from a child of wrath he becomes a child of God, and thus is transferred from death to life, as it is written, When we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. Ephesians 2 5. Likewise, the just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4. In this sense, the word is much and often used in the Apology. But again, it is often taken also for sanctification and renewal, which succeeds the righteousness of faith, as Dr. Luther has thus used it in his book concerning the Church and the Councils and elsewhere. But when we teach that through the operation of the Holy Ghost we are born anew and justified, the sense is not that after regeneration no unrighteousness clings any more to the justified and regenerate in their, be in their being and life, but that Christ covers all their sins, which nevertheless in this life still inhere in nature with his complete obedience. But irrespective of this, they are declared and regar re regarded godly and righteous by faith, and for the sake of Christ's obedience, which Christ rendered the Father for us from his birth to his most ignominious death upon the cross. Although, on account of their corrupt nature, they still are and remain sinners to the grave. Nor, on the other hand, is this the meaning, that without repentance, conversion, and renewal, we might or should yield to sins and remain and continue in them. For true contrition must proceed and to those who, in the manner stated, out of pure grace, for the sake of the only mediator Christ, without any works and merit, are righteous before God, that is, are received into grace, the Holy Ghost is also given, who renews and sanctifies them, and works in them love to God and to their neighbor. 
But since the incipient renewal is imperfect in this life, and sin still dwells in the flesh, even in the regenerate, the righteousness of faith before God consists in the gracious imputation of the righteousness of Christ, without the addition of our works, so that our sins are forgiven and covered and are not imputed. Romans 4, 6. But here, very good attention must be given with a special diligence, if the article of justification is to remain pure, lest that which precedes faith and that which follows after it be mingled together or inserted into the article of justification as necessary and belonging to it, because it is not one or the same thing to speak of conversion and of justification. For not everything that belongs to conversion belongs likewise to the article of justification, in and to which belong and are necessary only the grace of God, the merit of Christ, and faith, which receives this in the promise of the gospel, whereby the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, whence we receive and have forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, sonship, and heirship of eternal life. 